It's good to be with you this morning. We are going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. That's Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Excuse me, 1 through 16. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. I think it's on, in your pew Bible on page 3. And after I read, you can keep your Bibles open. We're going to talk about a few verses uh, farther in chapter 4. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield, yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even uh, difficult passages like this, and we pray that you would teach us uh, good things from it, that you would uh, redeem it to us, and uh, that you would draw us closer to you through this, and we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. So we're about a week into 2018, so you may be doing one of those Bible in a year reading plans. Uh, I like to fail at one of those every year, um, so I'm doing one myself, and uh, it struck me uh, as I was reading this week, uh, the story of Cain and Abel, a story that uh, many of you know well, and it struck me in the way a car wreck does, and so I sort of rubbernecked it for a couple days, uh, and I just couldn't believe this, this violent and sordid episode right at the very beginning of human history. And so as I slowed down, it struck me that the first human father and mother, Adam and Eve, knew the pain of losing a child. And that the first natural born man in all of history would turn out to be a murderer. It might not be the most upbeat way to kick off 2018, 
But maybe you can find some sort of inspiration in here for your New Year's resolutions, which I'm sure you're all keeping. So let's look a little more carefully at the story. It says, Adam knew Eve. The union that God created, bone of bones, flesh of flesh, bears fruit. Eve is as excited as any new mother. And so she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She names him Cain, which sounds like Hebrew for gotten. There may be a a little hint of pride here in this burst of joy, Uh, but she's excited and she rightly connects the son uh, to God in thankfulness. And then she has another son. She has Abel, whose name means fleeting or vapor, so foreshadowing of what is to come. Now think for a moment what these boys are born into and how different it is than what Adam and Eve saw when they sort of opened their eyes or became conscious. The Shorter Catechism says that Adam and Eve were created male and female in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. That's a pretty good start to life, I would think. Uh, I sometimes think about what I was almost born into. Uh, My dad was a farmer, but he sold the farm um, after I was born, but before I can remember. And so I have never... um, you know, bush hog, bush hog the field. I've never uh, fed the cows uh, or worked with the pigs. Those things are lost to me. Now think about what was lost to Cain and Abel. Gone is this beautiful garden that would yield up all of its fruit in, in peace and security as, as Adam worked that garden. It is all gone. The fruit of it is gone. The food of it that nourished Adam and Eve is no longer theirs in the same way. And more importantly, gone is that intimate communion with God. God walking with them in the cool of the day, in being with them. It could have all been theirs, but for this terrible thing that happened, it's the Westminster Confession, our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of body and soul. What does that mean? It means that Cain and Abel were born into sin and grew up outside the garden, outside of the care and safety that had been their parents before the fall. Cain and Abel were born into a world of danger, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual danger. And more than that, of course, we still live in that world. And we can tell when we look around that we are descendants from those rebels in the garden. We'll talk more about that later. So some time goes by. Uh, These boys grow up. They take different occupations. Uh, Cain works the ground. And Abel takes uh, the flocks. He is a a sheep herder. I'm speculating a little bit here, but I feel like those dovetail together pretty well so that uh, they sort of work together to provide for themselves and provide for their family, their parents. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Cain brings, it says, the fruit of the ground. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. Now here is where the tension begins, right? Because it says the Lord had regard 
a respect for Abel in his offering, verse 5, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. One of these brothers has pleased God, but one of them has not. And we should think carefully about what exactly was pleasing to God here. Because it is true that Abel's offer is a better offer, right? It's the first fruits of what he has, the fat portions. But God's real displeasure is not with Cain's offering, it's with the heart behind Cain's offering. And we know this because Hebrews 11, which we read earlier, mentions Abel as operating by faith. And Jesus himself calls him, Matthew uh, 23, 35, he calls him righteous Abel, righteous Abel. So the offerings themselves were really just illustrations of the inner truth of Cain and Abel, of who they really were. And the truth is that Cain did not love God. He did not care about him. So God rejected his offering. So Cain was very angry. So it, literally he grew hot with anger. And it says his face fell, so he was downcast. Now think about that for a second. Who is Cain angry with? And we'll come back to that as well. Then follows verse 6, a remarkable section. God is gracious enough to still be uh, down talking personally with his people at this point. And so he has a little talk with Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? It feels a little bit to me like Andy and Opie, kind of father-son talk. It's a fatherly chat. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, I am just, and what I, have, what I expect from you is clear. And then he says, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. When I was a kid, I lived close to uh, a dam uh, on a river. It wasn't a very big dam, maybe 20, 25 feet, and there was a rope swing above it. And when I was in high school, I went to my dad and I said, uh, hey, I'm going to go with my buddies down to this rope swing. And my dad put his foot down in an unusual way. He said, no, you're not going, which is not like my dad. He's a little more permissive than my mother. And so it surprised me, and I, and I asked him why, and he said, that rope swing is dangerous, and you will not go. So I was shocked, but my dad knew things about that rope swing that I did not know. He actually knew someone who had died at that rope swing, and so he was trying to protect me. And here, God is trying to protect Cain. Cain has no idea what is building up in him and, and ready to burst in sin but God does because God knows sin intimately he knows everything about it and he says Cain sin is on the other side of the door it's inches away you can hear it breathing like crouching like a wild animal and it wants to eat you up now Cain worked in the fields so I'm assuming he knew about wild animals but there's a difference here right because wild animals just want food but sin wants you it's personal that's the nature of sin that's why John Owen said be killing sin or it will be killing you because it's ravenous and it's personal and so God tries to counsel he tries to persuade he tries to warn Cain he sets out life and death 
blessing and curse for him. I said Andy and Opie earlier, this is more shades of uh, the father and the elder brother uh, in Luke 17 in the parable of the prodigal son, the father pleading with the son. It's interesting too that God says he wants him to rule over it. In other words, he wants him to be a better ruler than his father was. Cain fails the test, of course. He spoke to Abel, his brother. The implication here, I think, is that he sort of woos him. He invites him out into the field. And there, verse 8, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Murder. First degree murder, right, because he thought about it. And he lured him out into the field. What did he kill him with? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if Cain had some sort of rudimentary farm tools. However it happened, it had to have been very personal. And it had to have been close quarters, a brutal, a messy murder. What did he do with the body? We don't know. No one had ever died before. Who was Cain angry with? I would argue that Cain was not really mad at Abel. He was mad at him secondarily. Cain was really mad at God. That's why he grew hot. That's why his face was downcast. Because he was angry at God. And then he decided to take it out on his brother. To take it out on Abel. And he did it in the field where his unregarded sacrifice originated. And he kills Abel and almost as if Abel is another sacrifice. A sort of twisted perverse sacrifice. This is very bad, right? This is pure rebellion. This is by degrees a very heinous sin. All sin, even the smallest ones, condemn us before God, but some sins are more heinous than other sins. You kill a family member, uh, you kill someone God directly warns you not to. Um, These are multiplying factors. And so Cain refuses to admit to it when God confronts him. Verse 9, where is Abel your brother? Incidentally, brother is used seven times for Abel in this passage, never once for Cain, because Cain has has thrown away, has disowned his, his actual brotherhood and his brotherhood of man. And Cain says, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? See, is this, this wicked, insolent, uh, sort of smart-alecky reply. And by now we can only conclude that Cain opened the door. That he let that wild beast of sin in, and he has now become a snarling sort of wild beast himself. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So this is like a trial. Uh, Matthew Henry breaks it down, the scene, in this way. The arraignment. Where is Abel your brother? The plea. Am I my brother's keeper? So not guilty. The evidence and the conviction. God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And finally, the sentencing. God curses him. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. My punishment is greater than I can bear, whines Cain. But he rightly sees that his banishment 
is not just a banishment from a physical place. It's a banishment from, uh, from the loving presence of God. And he says, if I'm a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. God, ever gracious, says, not so. He says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. In other words, that person will die uh, for killing Cain. And the Lord put a mark on him to assure his safety. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what are we supposed to do with this story? Uh, It's probably not one of the hot ones for the the children's Bibles. Um, See, everyone, even non-Christians, know about the original sin, the the apple, the fruit. Um, One, speaking of apple, cheeky computer company, even even has as a symbol an apple with one bite out of it, right? Uh, We probably have some of those in in our pockets. Sin in our culture, in other words, is, is uh, something totally different. It is much more likely to be associated with like a dessert that you shouldn't eat, right? This, this double chocolate cake is, is positively sinful than it is to this sort of brutality. Because when sin entered the world and death through sin, we didn't even get one generation before we found a murderer, And that should tell us something about our lineage, about who we are descended from, about our our genealogy. This hit home for me recently. I spent some time over Christmas. I did one of those Ancestry.com free trials. Um, And my mother's maiden name is Clark. And so I started tracing Clarks back uh, as far back as I could go. And somewhere in uh, the uh, late 18th century, I got to Captain William Clark of the uh, Captain of the Revolutionary War. And he is my sixth great-grandfather. He was born in York, Pennsylvania. And during the war, had a sort of running personal battle with uh, the loyalist uh, known as David Fanning, uh, who's at least well-known enough to have a Wikipedia page that I looked up. And so David Fanning was... Um, sort of causing trouble in Randolph County, North Carolina, which is where my sixth great-grandfather lived. And so they had a a sort of personal skirmish and things were happening. And uh, at one point I read about my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather that he um, pursued and brought to justice two men who had uh, murdered someone in their town there. And uh, he was also a dedicated Quaker churchman. So you can imagine as I'm reading this, I'm like, man, this is great. <laughs> this guy is like very noble. Um, I'm, I'm in direct line from him. Uh, maybe I can hold my head a little bit higher, you know? Um, unfortunately, I kept reading. And this is what I found. Uh, William Clark did not apply for a pension for his service in the Revolutionary War. And after he passed, his children or it may have been his grandchildren wanted it. And so their job, they had to put together a file and, and interview a bunch of people who knew him and could prove basically who he was and that they were descended from him, from him and should get a pension. One of the men they interviewed was 87-year-old Alexander Gray, who, like the others I spent some time reading, spent a lot of time talking about how great uh, William Clark was, how he fought in a number of the pivotal battles in the Revolutionary War. And then at the very end of the seven-page document, I read this. 
Captain William Clark and his company were in the Battle of Utah Springs, where he, meaning Captain Clark, said he killed a British officer, which he regretted during life and seldom could speak of without shedding tears. He said him and the officer he killed were each engaged in dressing the lines of their respective companies, preparatory to entering into the battle, when he, Captain Clark, took a gun out of the hands of one of his men, shot at the British officer and saw him fall, which the said Captain Clark considered a murderous act, as neither of their companies were then engaged in the battle. In subsequent life, Captain William Clark became a member of the Quaker Society, and when urged by his children or others to apply for a pension, he usually replied that he would not receive pay for acts which his conscience condemned. In witness of all which I do hereunto set my hand the second day of October, 1855, Alexander Gray. I thought I had a hero for an ancestor. I have a murderer. I thought I had a churchman for an ancestor. I have someone who was driven to the church by the blood on his hands and to assuage his, his conscience. See, this is my genealogy, but it is all of our genealogies. We all descend from this type of wickedness because since the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, sin has been crouching at our door. And our ancestors opened it. And our parents opened it. And we have opened it. So that we have become animal-like in that way. I know you probably haven't uh, murdered anyone directly. I don't think that I have. But I also don't spend a lot of time thinking of how to preserve and promote the life of others. Of making a, a just defense against violence. This is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I've spent very little time thinking about love and compassion and meekness and gentleness and kindness. And I'm rarely found forbearing, ready to be reconciled, patiently bearing and forgiving injuries, requiting good for evil, comforting the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. All that stuff is not just window dressing. It is what God actually requires from us when he says, thou shalt not kill. And I have failed at that. And you have failed at that. So that in reality, we should all be wandering east of Eden. We should all be banished. And in a sense, we are that way, of course, in this broken world. But there is another word. There is the good news of the gospel. God did not leave his children without hope. He didn't even leave Cain without hope. He gave him the mark that bought him safety and even gave him some measure of flourishing later in his life so that he uh, ended up with a family. And further on in the Old Testament, God even uses other murderers like Moses and David. Why? Because the legacy of righteous Abel did not die in a field. It continued. Or as Hebrews 12, 24 puts it, the blood of Christ has better things to tell than the blood of Abel. In other words, when Jesus called him righteous Abel, he was resonating with his ancestor in a way that we could not understand until Jesus himself was murdered, until he died on the cross, until his own blood was shed because of sin. 
So you, you will not find Abel in the genealogy of Jesus, the one in Luke that goes all the way back. But as Tim mentioned, you will find Seth. See, after the murder, after Cain is banished, right, land of Nod, east of Eden, the rest of Genesis 4 talks about Cain's descendants. And we might not be surprised to find out that they don't turn out all that well. Uh, all the way down to um, the last one we meet is Lamech, uh, another murderer. In fact, a man who bragged about a murderer, he says he killed a young man for striking him, essentially for disrespecting him. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech is the culmination. He is the epitome of Cain's corrupt line. But right after that, we skip back to Adam and Eve. What happened to these bereaved parents? What well, says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. See, this is seed theology. If you think back to Genesis 3, to the first uh, inklings of the gospel, when God is pronouncing the sentence on Satan and on uh, Adam and Eve as well, he said the offspring, the seed, same word, of the woman would battle the seed of Satan. And though the seed of Satan would do harm, you shall bruise his heel, remember, ultimately the seed of the woman would win. You will, uh, would bruise Satan's head. In other words, would strike the decisive blow. But Satan struck a blow first, right? Immediately after the fall, the death of Abel by Cain's hand was Satan's first attack on the line, on the seed of the woman since the fall. But redemption did not, could not end in a bloody field. It continued through Seth and many years later to Jesus, who himself would die. But his blood is different, right? It's different than any other blood that has been shed out of all time because it is innocent. It is the only blood that doesn't deserve to be shed because Jesus was God, because he fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he died to cleanse us from our sins. And his blood still has the power so that... If you believe the way Abel believed, then you can be cleansed of your sin. If you repent of your subtly murderous and unloving, unlife-giving, unjust ways, then you too can never truly die, no matter what happens to you on this earth. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What is the sacrifice that God requires of you to be righteous? It's not a sheep. It's not anything from the field. It is yourself. It is your mind. It is your heart. It is all of you that God is asking for in repentance, and in faith. Cain would not give that up. And when God pressed him on it, he grew violent. 
Anytime we have issues with God, anytime we have tension with God, it's going to play itself out. We have that tension vertically with God, but it's going to play itself out horizontally. What does that mean? Well, more so, it's going to play itself out, not just in the people that you know, but also down line from you. It's going to play itself out in your children, in your children's children, and on into eternity. That's the sort of secondary application here, right? That the things we do in this life echo in eternity. That we are both a part of a legacy that we have received and we are building our own legacy for later on. That should be terrifying. You think about your children, your children's children, your loved ones, and it should drive us to Christ. But there's a a more primary application here, and it is this. Be like Abel. Do not be like Cain. Be like Abel. Believe. Have faith. Be righteous. See, sin is crouching at our door, and it wants to have us. But we can rule over it by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way, right? That means that you are not stuck with your legacy, No matter how old you are, no matter uh, what your family is like, no matter what has happened, up to this point, you are not stuck with your legacy. Uh, One of my best friends from seminary, uh, he's an Army Ranger now, and uh, on Thursday, um, he lost his father to cancer. And God was gracious enough uh, on his father's deathbed to save him. He repented and he believed the day that he died. You see, in one moment, he changed his legacy for himself, for his children, for his children's children. He did it by faith. And that's the only way that we can change our legacy. That's the only way that we can overcome being descendants of life takers and being life takers ourselves. It's by faith. That's how we can be a part of a legacy of redemption. From Abel to Seth to Enosh to Abraham to David to Jesus. So that we can leave our own legacy of life and not death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have showed us the way to life. And that you want life for us and not death. Uh, We thank you that you're gracious with us. Even as you were uh, gracious to your people In the beginning, to uh, Adam and Eve, who you clothed and continued to provide for after they rebelled, to uh, even the murderer, Cain, um, that uh, you continued to be with, who you protected. And we know that we don't deserve uh, anything better than that, Lord, but that by your grace, uh, you have given us good things and ultimately the best thing in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would take hold of that by faith and repentance we might love you more through Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.